Welcome to the Universal Dancer Podcast with your host, Leslie Zare, author of The Alchemy of Dance and The Alchemia Remedies, coming to you from Cairo, Egypt, the ancient land of Chem. Journey with us to explore sacred dance, the sacred arts, the mystical and the magical. Join a community of like-minded souls seeking to understand the cosmic dance of co-creation through the sacred arts. Come along and expand your mind, ignite your creativity, and explore something new and something old. Welcome, welcome to the Universal Dancer podcast. I'm Leslie Zare, the host for this podcast, and we are now in our fourth season. So if you have missed previous episodes, there is a playlist you can look at. Um, also, if you're listening to this as a podcast, all the, the previous episodes should be there. So have a listen and and explore this topic more deeply if it's especially if it's something that's new to you. So, my guest for today is Naomi Katz and let me introduce you to her now. Naomi Katz is a ceremonialist, educator and movement facilitator. As founder of Embodied Prayer, she draws inspiration from indigenous practices and ancient wisdom. Naomi, a native of New York, has embarked on a transformational journey from the bustling energy of the city to the serene desert landscape. Through this transition, she's learned to quieten her mind and listen to her inner voice, deepening her relationship with herself. Naomi acknowledges the significance of intellectual skills cultivated during her time in New York, recognizing their importance in navigating the complexities of the world. However, she has come to realize that her encounters with the world extend far beyond the realm of the mind. Naomi's path took a profound turn when she crossed paths with Carmen Vicente, a medicine woman and spiritual leader from the high Andes. Drawn to Carmen's wisdom, Naomi embarked on a global journey to work with her, serving as a translator and witnessing the power of Carmen's message. As an experienced educator, Naomi understands that her role as translator extends beyond mere language translation. It involves bridging ancient knowledge with our modern lives and awakening our senses to experience the universe in its entirety. Naomi's work encompasses ceremonies, movement, and curricula development for schools and organizations, all aimed at reconnecting individuals with their inner wisdom and restoring balance in our culture. Driven by a deep commitment to elevate the feminine voice and redefine leadership models, Naomi recognizes the essential qualities that women elders bring to the forefront. She believes reclaiming our relationship with the universe is pivotal in unlocking our collective potential and living a fulfilled life. Join us as we delve into Naomi's inspiring journey, exploring the intersection of ancient wisdom, education, and the empowerment of the feminine voice. Welcome, Naomi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad we could we could do this. Have this little talk. <laughs> 
So I'm going to begin by asking you what I ask all my guests, which is where did your dance journey begin? How did how did you get involved with dance? The answer that comes to me intuitively is I think I was probably dancing in the womb, to be totally honest with you. I am a person who, as my stepson says, I emote through movement. <laughs> it's a very important tool for me, always has been, to, to experience the world. And so I danced all the time as a little girl, and my parents sent me to ballet class, which a lot of little girls in New York had the opportunity to do. And I actually really enjoyed it. And I remember many times dancing in the living room of my parents' house, the whole, uh, the, the wall, the back wall was all windows. So at night it would become one big mirror and we had wood floors. And I remember just dancing all the time in front of these windows and my parents asking me to sit down, to be quiet, to calm down. And uh, I didn't. And I continued to dance pretty much for the entirety of my life since then as a child in lots of different spaces. I became a little bit disenchanted with ballet at some point and discovered modern dance. And when I went to university, I discovered also West African dance. And probably about um, eight or 10 years ago, I discovered the five rhythms and the world of conscious dance. And so I've been moving in different contexts in different spaces as long as I can remember. And then you created embodied prayer. So what what is embodied prayer and, and what does it entail? I'm not sure if I created embodied prayer or if embodied prayer created itself and, and it occurred to me to call it that. I think maybe might be more, I don't know. Um, I, as, as you mentioned in the intro, I also have had the, in addition to all my work with dance and other things that I've done in my life, I've had also the really great privilege of making this journey from being a super intellectual New Yorker to a person who's living not just in this realm of, of the mind, but also bringing my awareness through to the entirety of my body. And as I've been doing this more and more consciously, I have also been able to recognize that so much of the work that I have done with with Carmita, that's that's her name of affection, and and all the work that I've done to deepen my relationship with the earth, the air, the fire, the water, it comes through my body. Sometimes it comes through my body in, in voice as spoken word, poetry, song, and sometimes it comes through my body as movement and as dance. And either way, the experience of feeling it, of opening my senses to really have a, an embodied relationship with the world comes through movement. It's for me, it's most accessible through movement. And so over a number of years, I've been working with a circle of peers of other facilitators of conscious movement. And at some point, one of them said to me, you know what, what you do is actually ceremonial dance and, and you should call it that. So people know. And I thought that that name was a little bit, I don't know, not exactly accurate. And then, and then came this concept of embodied prayer, that movement, that the kind of movement that I'm practicing and that I'm inviting other people to practice with me is a prayer. I think it's actually true of all movement. Yeah, but in, in this context, I'm specifically referring to to this work, to this movement practice as embodied prayer to name the fact that when we move, when we really work in relation with the body, when we really breathe into our movement, when we feel the earth that this body is, the fire that's pulsating through my heart, the water moving in my blood in my veins in my arteries the air that is my breath all of this 
together, the feeling of it and also the expression of it is an embodied prayer. And there's also so much uh, misconception, misunderstand, not sure exactly what to call it, but maybe misuse of the word prayer because of the way religion has sort of taken over the, the way that we pray or, or think that we can or cannot pray. So calling this movement practice embodied prayer also helps us reclaim the concept of prayer. What is it to pray? What is it to really, with my body, with my breath, express a prayer, receive a prayer, practice a prayer? Well, I think dance was our first religion. And, I, and I'm sure that what we were doing was, was praying when we danced in the caves and no one would, would need to define anything. It just, that, it just was. That just was the way it was and how we expressed ourselves. But Yes, I agree that then things became complicated. <laughs> I think the written word didn't help us in that way because then we moved away from it being embodied and it being more an intellectual thing that um, we needed to explain or, or to define or to communicate through language rather than movement or presence or or other ways, as you said, other embodied ways. It's, it's interesting because I think that, that words do have a very important place in, in prayer, as a part of prayer, as an expression of prayer. But I think that your emphasis on the written word is really important because I grew up in a, a family that was Jewish and we went to synagogue every so often and the prayers that we did were written by someone else in a book. And I don't have very much of a memory of feeling, you know, a, a juice in those prayers. It was, it was more reading something that someone else had written. And of course there's power in that. Of course there's power in, in passing down messages and prayers and stories. And there's also so much power in the natural expression that comes through us. And one of the things that I often say when I work with people around the concept of prayer, spoken prayer, is that the words aren't passing through the mind. The words are coming from the depth, from the molten lava core of the earth and passing through all of the waterways into, into me, into the waterways of my blood, of my body, and, and being expressed before ever passing through this realm of the mind. And I think if we can look at prayers more like poetry, as you said, like something that's emoting or um, for the ancient Egyptians, the hieroglyphs also had a frequency. And I think that that's true of language. If it's used that way, if it's intentioned that way, then there is also that frequency. And as you pointed out, the written word is much more static, but the the spoken word or intoned or, or somehow vibrational has much more impact or much more energy behind it. So if I think if we could think of it in that way, and also to get to the essence of what it was, even for prayers that are written, if we could get to the intention behind that, I think a lot of people just read things, recite things without the depth of experience that was probably initially put into whatever those words were. So I'm sure it has a lot to do with the, the speaker or the presenter or uh, how it's actually being used. I, I think that uh, 
Yes, I agree with everything that you're saying. And the other word that comes to me in this context is authenticity. That, of course, something that someone wrote, there, there's deep authenticity there in, in most situations. But when I read something someone else wrote, is that my authentic prayer? And when we talk about, when I talk about embodied prayer, for me, it's a movement practice, but of course, also the way that we sing, even sometimes a song that someone else wrote, this can come through as a prayer, or as you said, a poem, how, how am I giving expression to the prayer that lives inside of me and also receiving the expression of the prayer of the universe. And it, it happens in my experience, it happens through all different kinds of embodied practices, not just movement, but also obviously breath work and music and th there's you know many, but the, the word, when we work with the word, when I work with the word, I hope for it to be a word that's coming through me authentically and and in the moment and in the energy of the experience that's happening right now. Well, sadly, I think that authenticity is missing from, from most communication. I mean, if we had that even in conversations and in speech, life would be so much different. And, and I think that's the problem with um, phrases, you know, like 24 seven or all these little catchphrases because at some point they become devoid of meaning and they're just things that you repeat. So I think if we could live our lives in the sacred way of actually, again, being authentic about the way we speak and everything that's coming out of our mouths or our, our movements or our gestures, I think life would be very different. Without what a doubt. would someone what would someone encounter if they if they were studying embodied prayer with you? You said there's movement, but what how do we do that movement or, or how is it presented? What what does this look like? Well, when I'm holding space for people, then there are various different expressions. I generally am guiding through music and also through the voice, through speaking with the people. And Every session that I do, whether it's an entire weekend retreat or an hour long session or whatever, you know, one on one groups, always we start with the purpose. What's the purpose today? What is the, what is our prayer? What is the intention of this prayer? And then integrating that purpose into whatever we're doing. So, for example, um, in in these times in the world where so much is changing and there's so much energetic movement and sometimes it can be very chaotic and, and sometimes difficult. One of the practices that I feel is extremely useful is to work with gravity, to work with our relationship with the earth, with the, the physical weight, both the weight of our body and also the, the weight of everything that we're experiencing and to use the support that the earth, to lean on the support that the earth offers to us is, is a really powerful practice. And so, you know, we could spend an entire weekend or much longer working just with that. So there's no, it's no particular form. It's more about how can I, how can I pray or how can I express or make that connection maybe through, through different movements that might be individual to the person? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what you mean, but I also studied for a long time uh, Martha Graham's technique. And so if you're, you know, if, if that's form, which it's quite 
a lot of form. So yeah, embodied prayer is, I wouldn't say formless, form. but, yeah. but much more organic and very much about how do I return to re-inhabit my body? To, especially for women, all of us, you know, we all have varied kind of relationships with our bodies. But my experience as a woman has been that there have been so much, there's been so much messaging and so many experiences in my life that have created a separation between me and my body and a, and a often dislike. Certainly when I was younger, now I'm happy to say that we've remarried my body and I and, and we're back in a good vibe together. And so for me, there's a lot of emphasis on re-inhabiting the body finding the way to take up all of the space in our entire body and and to really enjoy that space of living in a body to reconnect with our relationship as i mentioned earlier with the elements the earth the air the fire the water without these we would not be here we would not have life and these elements express themselves through us in the physical form and also obviously around us and but is there a specific practice that has an exact form that this is what you do first and then this second and this? No, it's much more of a, a practice about how do I remember what it is to be human in a body? How do I listen again to the wisdom that lives in me? How do I find the quiet inside of myself in order to be in the receiving end of that conversation of that wisdom? And how does my relationship with the body, not just with dance and movement, but also sometimes silence and, and lack of movement, allow for the space for me to be in an embodied relationship with everything. Well, I think that inner space is a, is a very feminine aspect, which sadly we've lost. <laughs> I think all of us, even, even women have, as you said, become disconnected from the body and, and the importance on the mind was so overemphasized that we have lost that connection to the body. So, um, anything that, and I, and I, I'm agreeing with you on the fact that dance and movement for me to be embodied, I have to be moving. I realized that once in a, in a class, we had to lay still on the floor or something. And I realized that if I lay still, I have no perception of my body that for me, my body needs to be moving in order for me to experience it. So and that could be a problem that I have that I need to work through. But I just thought that was really interesting that it's to me, the movement that enlivens that or animates that to make me receptive to that. So for me, movement is a huge part of everything just because I feel um, in a void somehow if I'm not moving. So um so I think movement is a really good way to reconnect with the body and to find ourselves again, as you said, um, having that relationship that, that most of us probably grew up with or lack of relationship with our bodies as we grew up. And that's sad because we are embodied souls. So we kind of missed the point, I think. <laughs> It's, it's interesting because um, in the in the context of my work with Carmita, I've participated many times in a ceremony, which is a dance ceremony, four nights, all night dancing, with the intention, the purpose of this ceremony is to celebrate the ones who have gone to the stars, the ones who no longer walk the earth. And it's called the Dance of the Spirits. And at some point during one of these ceremonies, I realized that the only thing that separates me 
from the spirits with whom the spirits who we are calling the spirits with whom we are dancing the spirits whose photos are on the altar is the fact that i have a body right now today here i have a body and the ones who came before me who are in the stars my mom my grandparents they don't anymore and in my understanding and i i say this really humbly in in my understanding that is the thing the body is the thing that that gives us the possibility to be alive on the earth in this time. And when I hear you talk about your personal journey that that you want to be moving in order to feel the body, it feels really natural. I, I don't think it's actually a problem at all. I think it's a really natural response to the world in which we live, which so many people are spending so much time engaging just this part of the body, you know, just the mind and and the body becomes kind of secondary, which is ironic because of course we couldn't exist without it. And the anything that we do, whether it's breathe or eat or go pee or move that reminds us that we have a body gives us the possibility to reawaken that relationship, that embodied relationship. And I think that when we move simply for the sake of moving, simply for the sake of remembering that we have a body, then it's a complete contradiction to the cultural movement, which is telling us all the time to sit down and think and work on the computer and, and talk, which are also useful ways of, of functioning in life. I'm not cutting off my head and I'm not shutting down my mind completely, but I do like to say sometimes, many people are all about practicing mindfulness. And for me, actually, I, I like to practice mindlessness and to really just be in the body. And so I really understand, you know, I, I said earlier, my parents always told me to sit down and I often didn't listen. So <laughs> yes. I, I get you, but I yep. think also that there's place obviously for breath work and, and for other aspects of embodiment that aren't necessarily movement, but I too am a mover. No, but for me, breath work is movement because mm -hmm. there's you're, you're focusing on the movement of your breath. So um, I would still, I, I mean, I do. If I do breath work, I'm conscious of the rising and the falling. So to, to me, that is a kind of movement. And I think you said something very important about having a body because in many spiritual practices, the concept is that we, because we are corporeal, we have agency. So the non-material world can speak through us or move through us, but it's our obligation almost to act because we do have a body. And I think, as you said, we forget that because we've been told to sit down, to be quiet, children should be seen and not heard, you know, all these kind of things that stop you from acting and put you in a kind of paralysis almost. But I think it's really important for us as human beings to remember that we were given this gift of the body and that because we have a body, we have the ability to act and to do and that there are other forces that can guide us, but we're the ones that need to actually manifest and do things because we have this body with which to do that. So tell us a bit more about your your experiences with Carmen. How did that come about and and uh, and what was how did that unfold? 
Well, I'm not sure if it came about because there was a prophecy that made it came about, made it come about, and now, uh, now we're living this prophecy, or because I just am a very, very fortunate person. Maybe some combination of the two, but I have a very distinct memory of feeling as an adolescent and also in my early twenties, looking for the inspiration. And and I remember saying to my friends, my, I want to be inspired. Where's the inspiration? And and I it wasn't because I was unhappy in my life or something like this. I, I was actually, it's funny because at that time I was teaching seventh grade, you know, 13 year olds. There's a lot of inspiration there. There's a lot going on. It's not a boring job <laughs> at all. But But I just, I could feel that there was something more and that I wasn't sure exactly what it is, but that I wanted to come closer to it. And I, when I was 25, I left New York and I moved to California and, for graduate school, but then realized for graduate school in philosophy too. I mean, could you get any more intellectual and political <laughs> philosophy? And so at some point I realized this is not for me. And I started, I, 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 that's also the same time I started to study Martha Graham actually, because at UC Berkeley at the university where I was, there was someone who had been a student of hers. And so I had the great opportunity to, to dance a lot, which balanced out on the intellectual side of the work that I was yes. doing. And also during this time, I started to really rediscover my relationship with the natural world. I grew up in a house where the windows were often closed and the air conditioner was on. And that's, I'm not criticizing this way of life. And I had a beautiful childhood and, and many opportunities. And I also recognize that when we have the, when I have the possibility to really connect with the natural world, then something else opens inside of me. And so this happened in the time that I was living in California and I ended up going to live on an organic farm for a little while and learn about agriculture and learn about sustainability and little by little find my way back to a very basic relationship with nature, with the seasons. And I continued to kind of search for something to try and, and figure out, I didn't know what it was that I was searching for, but I studied herbalism for a while. And anyway, fast forward a number of years and somebody invited me to a sweat lodge that was going to be held by this woman, Carmen Vicente. And it sounded interesting to me. And so I went, it was actually a day for women half a day where we had a conversation and then the afternoon sweat lodge. And I understood immediately that this is what I was searching for, that this kind of inspiration was what I was looking for. I shouldn't say that I understood immediately, but I could feel something very strong and, and followed this. I really followed this impulse and started to travel to work with her. She's from Ecuador. I started to travel to work with her in different places and my Spanish became a lot better. And I started to work with her as a translator. And I, I pretty much, had the opportunity, have the opportunity to be exposed to someone who, maybe a br brief interlude about, about Carmita, because her story is also super interesting, that she grew up in an indigenous community in the high Andes, where more or less the border of Ecuador and Peru is. And when she was 14, her family had to leave the community because European interests came and cut down many trees in that area. And they went to live in the city. And she continued, she was initiated at the age of five by the medicine women of her community. And she continued her work with her teacher, even when she was living her city life. But, but obviously it was different. And at some point around the 1970s, when the voices of the indigenous people, mostly of South America, also North America, but particularly South America were becoming very strong. Also, this is the time when Rigoberta Manchu won the Nobel Prize. 
The indigenous leaders who knew about Carmita called her back into this work. Also her grandmother called her back into this work of, of the healing work with people. And she understood that because by this point in her life, she had spent more time in the city than she did in her community, that her mission is to bring this healing work to what she calls the people of the cities, what I understand to be the people of the West. And, and so this is her mission. And I, had sort of an opposite journey starting out in new york in a pretty sterile non-spiritual at least not spiritual to my un, to my understanding lifestyle and then found my way by not just by meeting her also my own journey reconnecting to the natural world but to to a way of relating to life that first of all begins with gratitude gratitude for this body for the steps of the ones who've come before me so that I can be alive today doing what I do. And not just gratitude, but also awareness, really careful, loving attention to what's happening in the world, to what's happening around me, to the movement of the sun in the sky, to the seasons, to the natural calendars of life, to the basic values of the earth, the air, the fire, the water. And it's super cliche to say it changed my life. There wasn't one moment that changed my life, but certainly this encounter with Carmita and, and my natural attraction and also perfect fit to this work has, has influenced me very, very deeply. In a way though, it, for me, it seems like it's becoming human, like this reconnection to the earth, this studying herbology or whatever it is, the elements, is is what it is to be human because as you said here we are on this planet earth and if we're completely disconnected from it then how are we human how are, or how are we kind of indigenous to this planet if we don't actually acknowledge the planet and what it holds so um i see that as a path back to becoming human and to reconnecting to the earth to mother or our mother mother earth and um, as you said, our bodies are a big part of that because it's, it's our laboratory almost, how we process all of those experiences that we're having, whether it is the elements or using our ability to grow things or whatever those different uh, things are, those gifts. Absolutely. Actually, it's interesting because one of the one of the things that Carmita has really imprinted in my heart is that she says that there no hay desconexión, solamente una falta de atención. There's no disconnection, only lack of attention. And attention in this time has become a commodity. You know, the, I mean, we don't, it's a whole other podcast, whole other conversation to talk about the, <laughs> the, atten the attention economy. But what I will say is that when I am engaged with my embodied self, when I am present in my whole body, then I can listen to you through all of my body, not just through my ears. And I can also communicate with you or with anyone, with a tree, with life, through the entirety of my body. And so for me, this awakening of attention is essential. And I need to use the body to awaken that space of attention. Not everybody does. Other people can do it through other tools. But for me personally, I need to engage the body in order to engage that full attentiveness. And, and I think it's it, kind of a door opening too. Once you once you go through that door, it's hard, it's hard to come back. 
definitely point of no return <laughs> once what once we start to i have experienced once we start to really use the body to open our awareness and our attention then then yeah it's an essential tool and with respect to what you said before about becoming human yes what does it mean to be human in this time how have we allowed for ourselves to be completely subservient to this machine which is the phone for example and and almost turned kind of into robots now i all thanks to technology we would not be able to be having this conversation without technology we wouldn't have met without technology all of these things i recognize and i also recognize that we need the balance and it connects to what you referred to before about the presence of the feminine that we need to find a, a balance again between the masculine and the feminine in the way that we relate to the world and in that search for balance, also the balance between action and rest. Because if we don't have the space of rest, then we don't have the space of quiet to listen. And what kind of relationship is it if only one is speaking all the time and the other is listening? So how, again, do I return to that place of quiet so that I can listen to the rain or to a tree or to my sister? I don't think anybody's listening. <laughs> I think everybody's talking or texting or posting or reposting and nobody's listening. I mean, that I think is one of the one of the big problems is that nobody's listening. I don't think people listen to what somebody says. They just respond to what they think that person said. So that, that uh, ability to listen, I think, is one of the greatest gifts that's needed at this point in time. We've become over-communicated, but not with reciprocity. We become over-communicated, like, in one direction, that everything goes out and nothing comes back in. So it's not a relationship anymore. It's not an interaction. It's just, a, like, everybody's giving a speech and and nobody's actually involved in, in the conversation. Sadly. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think you're right, which is ironic, right? Because we're organized, we're having this conversation for a podcast, which people are going to listen to and, and not necessarily respond. So maybe that's good. Maybe that means that people will, the people who hear us really will be listening. And, uh, when we do that, when we're able to really listen to one another, I love the fact that you touched on it because I think that part of the syndrome that we're seeing in the world right now of this non-human behavior that we've taken on or this this way of relating that isn't really healthy for us is is that really there's such a lack of intimacy and there's such a need, a desperate need for intimacy in, in our time, in our relationships. I work also quite a bit with young people and I see how alone they often feel because we're just not so habituated anymore to have deep, intimate conversations, both in terms of the way we listen to one another and also what are we willing to share? Am I as an adult really willing to be vulnerable with a young person or with anyone for that matter? And through my own vulnerability creates space for their vulnerability and how do i show up when i am in a conversation with anyone with a friend with my partner with my parent with anyone am i really there to hear what you're saying or am i just waiting for my turn to talk and I think the sacredness, I think the sacredness of intimacy is something that's been forgotten 
we've been brainwashed to think that everything should be out there. And, you know, people are posting all kinds of pictures of themselves, their family, their whatever, with this idea that that's what's expected. And I think that's made it very easy for, for us to um, be really vulnerable in the sense of safety vulnerable, not in the, in the vulnerable sense of that can I open to you, but um, in this uh, unsafe kind of vulnerability. And somehow it's become expected. These things became expected. And, and again, I don't think people are thinking this through that. Um, I remember someone who was working, doing body work on me once, and we were having a conversation afterwards and she about something that doesn't make any difference. But I remember this phrase, she said, there should always be this peace that's just between you and God or you and the divine. And I thought, wow, yeah, that, that piece of, you know, um, of with depth or, or whatever it is that I can have this relationship. I don't have to share everything with everybody. There can be, be this, and not as a secret, but just as a, a sacredness, something that's, that's very deep, and profound that I, I'm not obligated to share with everybody else. And I think that that, again, is something that's been lost, is this idea that I don't have to. I can, I can be vulnerable with certain people. And again, that goes back to sacred space and holding space for other people. But to be more discerning, I guess, is the word about, about what we do share and how we share it. And that people should be worthy of it in the sense that there has to be a relationship between myself and somebody else for that person to be worthy to hold that space for me to to be vulnerable to yeah the you know <laughs> i think that one of the places where i can see really clearly the the how essential it is for us to allow for this the kind of intimate sharing and also holding for ourselves what's what's really intimately mine or between mine and the spirit that connects really closely so i work in other languages besides english and i when i talk about attention in other languages i don't have to use the phrase pay attention which I was stuck with for a while because it felt kind of, you know, is it a coin? Is it, why are we paying attention? And actually in Hebrew, which is another one of the languages I work in, the, the phrase is lasim lev, to put your heart. That, and that means to pay attention, which is very beautiful. And so I was kind of stuck with the English phrasing for a while. And then all of a sudden I realized that this attention, this careful, loving attention that we can pay to one another, this careful, loving attention that we can cultivate through our embodied relationship with ourselves and with the universe, that's our new currency. Or actually not new, that's an ancient currency that we have the opportunity to revive in an economy of generosity. If I have the possibility to be generous with you, with my attention, to give you attention from my heart and really listen to you, then of course that is also going to return to me in another way, not necessarily because you'll pay attention to me in that way, but because you might give that kind of attention to someone else who needs it. And, and, and this is the way 
the, the currency travels, just like money, but so much more profound because it's, it's a different kind of exchange. And this idea of paying careful, loving attention is actually very dear to my heart in this journey to return to our humanity. And it's also a very feminine thing because basically as a mother, this is what you're doing is you're paying attention to the child and, and mothers did not get paid for, <laughs> for paying attention, sadly. And I think then went on other paths, but, um, yeah, I think that that's an interesting, I'm going to have to contemplate that more deeply, but that's a very interesting point. Absolutely. Something else I would like to ask you about is this relationship. I mean, especially as, as for women, how does one's relationship with the menstrual, menstrual cycle, that embodied relationship with the menstrual cycle, how does that help us to connect to spirit? Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Thank you for bringing up that really essential piece. I don't really remember the first time I bled. I don't remember so much. And I had a great relationship with my mom and with both of my grandmothers. And But I just don't remember there being any kind of recognition of it or anything like that. I do remember actually that I was older than most of my friends when, when we started bleeding. And so they already had their period and I didn't yet. And I was eager to be able to tell them that I did. I remember this experience, but I don't remember the experience of the bleeding. And, and subsequent to that, so many years of living this cycle, watching those commercials on TV where the, the liquid that's representing the blood is this blue dishwashing detergent or something instead of the actual blood, which so much misinformation. And, and so just putting all that aside for a minute, all of the education that isn't accurate for us around the cycle. And, and if we're able to return to what is actually happening in the body, the body is, is building and breaking down life over and over and over again. And we're living this cycle. Actually, Pat McCabe, she said it most beautifully that we're living the building and the dismantling of the altar of life. And this really resonates with me because if we can relate to our cycles with that understanding that that we're carrying the possibility of life with us and also know that contrary to so much of the education we receive the menstrual cycle doesn't live in our bodies just so that we can have kids of course it's a huge part of the purpose of this altar of life continuing in our bodies but there's also so much more information so much more learning that's available to us through attention to the cycle and with Carmita and a group of other of women from around the world, I had the privilege of working, doing an initiation where over the course of a year and a half, we retreated, every, each one on her own, retreating during the days of your bleeding to return to the rhythm of living with the body and listening to the, to the body's rhythm and also to this very simple attentiveness to what the body needs, to give the body space and time during those days of bleeding to rest to disconnect from everything else and to just be. And during the other parts of the cycle to be more in action because that's what those moments of the cycle are asking for or not necessarily asking for, but allowing for energetically in, in the energy that lives in our bodies. And my, actually I should have probably brought it up even in the very first question around, uh, or one of the earlier questions around my relationship with dance because the, in my journey to, to re-inhabit my body, this initiation of taking time to listen to my cycle and retreating 
was essential because it allowed for me to remember that this aspect is fundamental to our health, to our individual and collective health. And we receive so many messages. I received so many messages about, you know, just put in a tampon and carry on or whatever the language, the messaging might have been wherever, wherever I was, that I didn't, it didn't even occur to me really to pay attention to my cycle. And with over the years, it, it actually started to become a central element. Now my cycle is, you know, I'm in a different phase of life and, and it's not the same kind of reliable clock that it once was. And, and still that relationship that we have with the movement of cyclicality is a beautiful gateway through which we can walk to reclaim our relationship to our embodied selves. Because the map of the cycle, the stages of the menstrual cycle, these are, it's the same map of so many other cycles in the natural world, the phases of the moon, the movement of the earth around the sun, the seasons of the year, even the phases of our lives. And when we can remember that wisdom that lives within us, then we have a completely different point from which we can begin to, or, or not necessarily begin, maybe continue to deepen our relationship with our embodied self. And I think the concept of cycles is, again, is something that isn't in our consciousness. Again, it's, it's part of the feminine. It's not linear. It's these cyclic things where things do begin and then you have to let go of them. And sadly, especially in Western culture, that idea of letting go is, it seems to be very difficult. So I think we do need to, for all of us, we need to bring that idea of cycles back into our consciousness. And as you said, it, it's part of nature, the moon, we're aligned with the moon and the seasons and, and the planets and all of these things. But we've forgotten that we've made everything so linear and often linear in that ever increasing way, which is not healthy. So I think ev all of us need to bring that back just back into our consciousness that that it's okay to go around i think a lot of people think they're not moving up they're not progressing if they're going around but a spiral goes around so we can go around at different levels there's there's many ways to interpret that and and i grew up with with the same messaging even to the point that they created pills to make your menstrual cycle stop completely. And I thought, I remember at the time thinking, oh my God, what does that do to your body? Like, what does that do to your body? Your body needs that regen, that letting go and that regeneration cycle. I can't even imagine what that, what that would do to somebody. Um, I don't know if there's any long-term studies on that, but just to lose that cycle because I'm, you know, I'm older, so <laughs> I know what it's like to lose that cycle, but you're losing it for a different reason and in a different way. Um, and there are still cycles, but different cycles. But um, yeah, I can't even imagine. I, I agree with you. And I wish I had been more aware. I think motherhood make, made me more aware of my cycle. But um, when I was younger, I, no, I wasn't 
in tune with that. And, uh, and I do remember my first period and it was a horrible experience. Mm -hmm. Again, I think we need to initiate young women into this to make them understand why this is a beautiful thing and a beautiful transition and why stepping into womanhood is a beautiful thing because I think it has been, um, at least it was when I was younger and, and I don't see that that's really improved over time. So hopefully that's something we can instill as the elders and the grandmothers we can instill in, in younger generations. I think that simply talking about it is already yes. making a huge shift and giving one thing that I do observe that is changing, um, you know, in the generations that I see is, is that there is much more permission to talk about it. When I was young, I feel like it was a secret, you know, if someone had her period and, and just, and, and now there's much more openness and, and space to talk for sure, which I think is a huge, huge step. And the other thing is that this also connects directly to what we were saying earlier about returning to our humanity and about the kind of listening, because on the one hand, we get all this messaging or there is all this messaging around that's just kind of putting the cycle as a secondary thing, but none of us would be here if not for the health of our mother's cycles. Yes. And so how do we return also to remember that and to remember that because of this moving, shifting, birth, birth, growth, death, rebirth happening again and again, this is what gives us the possibility of life. And from there, everything begins. And we all know that, but somehow we managed to kind of put that piece of information aside. We don't think about it. <laughs> it just happens. We don't think about it. Yeah. No, we need to bring that back to consciousness. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for being with me today and, and talking about all these these wonderful topics that I certainly love to talk about. So, so thank you for sharing with me. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, also you have some online offerings. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, what you offer online. I do. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me about that because I completely forgot. So this, what I was saying earlier about the map of the menstrual cycle and the way that that map is a reflection of the other maps of other cycles in the natural world. I have a video course about it, which is available for on my website for you to do in your own time. So this is a really nice introduction to, thank you for sharing the website. This is a really nice introduction. It's called Cycle Wisdom Power. It's a really nice way to First of all, engage with embodied prayer to engage with the movement practice because the course is comprised of some talking and some guided meditations, movement meditations. And so that's an option. And I also have an ongoing women's collective that meets once a month where we practice movement and we also talk and share. And so this collective opens its doors every few months and you can pay attention also to find on my website and uh, we could connect there as well. So Naomi's website is her name. So it's www.naomikatz.com, N-A-O-M-I-K-A-T-Z.com. And you're also on Instagram. I am. Which is Naomi, uh, Naomi A. Katz, N-A-O-M-I-A-K-A-T-Z. So... There are ways to connect with, with Naomi. So if you want to find her, she's, she's easy to find. I found her. So 
<laughs> so I know you it's very possible. Much. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being here. I really appreciate you you sharing with us, sharing your wisdom, and um, I hope people will connect with you through the the internet as well. So thank you for being here. Thank you. And thank you to the audience. I appreciate you, your support and you being here and listening or watching however you've, you've found us. And as I mentioned, this is the fourth season. So if you want to watch other episodes, there is a playlist on YouTube and the other episodes are also available as a podcast. And if you want to find me, you can find me at universaldancer.com, one word, www.universaldancer.com, also danceasaspiritualpractice.com and danceasaspiritualpractice.org. And I have a very basic Dance as a Spiritual Practice course in my school, which you will find links to through those websites. So if you're interested to do that, please check that out. And as I said, please check out some of the other previous podcasts. Uh, most of them are about sacred dance. I do also talk about sacred arts, and we'll be doing that a bit more in this fourth season. All right. Well, thank you for being here and take care. <laughs>